This episode of Timucua Presents is supported by Orlando Brewing, Florida's only USDA-certified organic brewery. Visit their tap room at 1301 Atlanta Avenue in Orlando and check them out online at orlandobrewing.com. This is Timuqua Presents. I'm David McDonald. I like to think every episode of this show is special, but this is a special episode. This time, I sat down with Timuqua Arts Foundation founder Benoit Glazer. We talked about his background as a musician, how he got from Montreal to Orlando, why he started hosting concerts in his home, and where the foundation is going in the future. And before we get to the interview, as usual, I'd like to ask you to please subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your preferred podcast app. It would really be great if you could leave us a review and a rating in iTunes. Thank you to those of you who've done that already. I appreciate your emoji. Thank you for your support. A small note about this recording. I sat down with Benoit in his dining room during a crazy loud thunderstorm. So if you hear any big crashes or anything, there's nothing going on in the world around you. There's just a crazy thunderstorm going on in this recording. So I apologize for that. Uh, and now, I'm would normally I would introduce you to Benoit, but I would probably say it wrong. So I will let him introduce himself. Well, my name is Benoit Glazer. I say it like that because I heard myself say it in English on a recording recently, and it just doesn't sound good when I say it. I was born in Montreal, raised uh, in the woods an hour and a half north of Montreal. And uh, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't suppose I have to go into the, my, my origin story as far as the, how I came into music, but it was a fairly sudden uh, decision, and it was at college. And so I switched to trumpet at college, so I was a very late starter. Uh, when it comes, I mean, I was an early starter when it came to theory, advanced theory. That was my first formal exposure to uh, to music at age twelve or thirteen, and um, and I did play other instruments before. But uh, so, and I learned all of my all of my theoretical point of view comes from the jazz guitar point of view because that's who taught me theory first. It was over one summer, but I had two or three lessons a week. And so it was very intensive. I, you know, six years of post-secondary education, I never learned a single thing about theory that I didn't already know from age 12. So I have a different, everybody has their own path, you know, to their, what they do. And so that's basically my path. And the other fact of me starting very late as a trumpet player that is imp uh, maybe important or relevant to me anyways, is that I see the instrument as a, in a different way. Like I... I, there are limitations that I was never able to overcome, for example, and or that's the way I feel. Maybe it's a Zen thing, but you know, um, but I never, f I have never felt like I, I mastered the instrument. I always feel like I'm studying the instrument, and I, you know, I practice every day. I start from scratch every day, as if I've never played the instrument, and that's a kind of another kind of uh, point of view that may be a little bit unique because I started so late, and so I had to. Um, compensate you know in different ways you know again like turnarounds around problems like you know finding solutions to problems that are maybe a little bit in unconventional 
and my approach to teaching the instrument, for example, might reflect that a little bit, so it would be a little bit unique. So, but uh, musically, my entire career at, uh, in Montreal before I moved to Orlando was based around the studio, and um, so I did a lot of studio work on different instruments and as an arranger, you know, composer for jingles and things like that, and, uh, and as a player, and I played drums, I played, you know, other instruments in the studio as well, which is why, and because I played reeds also, uh, people would call me first, like sometimes, because if they weren't sure what they needed for jingles, like jingles is a special scene and everywhere in the world, but in Montreal it's a very unique scene where you get a call at 11 p.m. and then by 9 a.m. the next morning, the jingle is on television, like it's on the air. And so, and the session is at eight o'clock usually, so it's a very quick turnaround, you know, like you have to conceive it, you have to write the jingle, I would do that overnight and then and call my guys at night at you know 11 30 or midnight and say okay eight o'clock tomorrow morning i need this person this person this person and then write the parts and then you know of course obviously it's a minute or a minute jingle or minute whatever it's not long doesn't take long to record but you know mix it present it to clients and all that stuff which i didn't do i that's never did that but um but it's a very very fast turnaround time and so it's um you learn to kind of deal with a certain kind of pressure that in turn made me maybe a, a, a more natural candidate for certain types of job, like uh, conducting television gala shows, for example, like where there's prizes, you know, like people win and you don't know until the last minute. And so you have to, you know, all that kind of stuff. Having uh, stage managers yelling in your ear, you know, all through the show, all that kind of stuff. So. It may, it kind of, all my training kind of led me to the Cirque du Soleil job, which is why I came here to Orlando in 1998. And so that's a long-winded way to get to that, but that's my musical background. jobs where you were working in the studio you were entirely on your own so you would get the call and you would start from nothing and you would do every piece of the production process including go into the studio on the other side of the microphone participate in performing in yeah, the yeah, recording yeah. mix everything down and send it out so well, you were not only doing the the kind of artist side but you were also doing some of the managing stuff well 
Yes, but that's for the jingle scene. That jingle scene was a unique scene, and it's not something I did every single day, but it was maybe something that I would... Usually they were burst, but sometimes, you know, that those are morning, morning sessions, and I was in the studio maybe two mornings a week on average, two, three mornings a week. So, But still, it's relatively frequent, you know. Then the other... There's other studio work that we I did a lot. For example, pop pop recordings uh, in with the brass section, and so they would call always the same. It was always either the three of us, the four of us, the five of us, but always the same guys. I worked with the same people all the time. And in Montreal, the pop artists and the producers basically they don't write the arrangements for brass, and um, so we would get there. The record was entirely recorded. Everything was done except for our part. And then they said, okay, go. And so we had to come up with the arrangements. We'd listen to the piece once, you know, figure it out amongst ourselves, not have time to write anything down, just say, okay, you play the seventh year, you play the, okay, let's do that, and sing the figures, blah, blah, blah. Very kind of garage band, but on, on steroids. Because in, you know, an hour, we could crank like seven or eight tunes, which was usually out of 15 pieces, they would, not all have brass on them, you know, so that was the typical pop recording we did was basically half the record record has had brass on it or sometimes more. But um, so that's uh, that's was that was another aspect of my studio life, if you will. So in that aspect, we it, we were also arrangers, but on the spot. And so we were more artists than producers. But then I also had projects like uh, this fusion band I played a lot in and that other, like more, let's say, artistic recordings, which I did a lot of. I mean, there's, you know, um, and that was, I, w I would write the arrangements and I was there for the mixing and I was much more involved in the technical aspects of the uh, whole recording process. And then there's the television uh, film industry, which is a different scene uh, and... The film is a different scene, and then the television is live. Most of it was live television. So, you know, you have an hour rehearsal, then you usually go to dinner or lunch, whatever, depending what time it is, or sometimes morning shows I used to do a lot of. Um, and then you're on television. So, and then, of course, you're the artist. And um, you're the artist, and you're also, it was a visual. I, had, I needed a character, you know. So all through the 90s, for example, most of it, I would my shave my head. I had sunglasses on 24/7, you know, when I was on stage, and so you know, I had a persona that went with the. Uh, I was younger too, so I didn't have white hair by then. <laughs> but uh, but so that was you know so every kind of facet of the the studio scene. I basically lived in the studio for, and I I used to teach at McGill also, and I had you know tours and things like that, but. I spent a lot of time in the studio, and I wore many hats in the studio. So that's why when I'm here in my recording studio, I'm very comfortable, you know, producing the stuff because I did so much of it. Even, like, at first I was mostly watching. Professionals do that. Then I became, a, you know, and I also, you know, McGill University has the most advanced, it's a very unique master's degree in recording arts. I took a lot of, I didn't take the master's, I'm not, I do not have a master's in, in recording uh, engineering or recording arts, but I did a lot of, um, I participated in the program in many ways, like I, 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 I supported the recording students with my students and myself, usually those, those recordings were overnight, and so, you know, you had to go, I'd have to go to school at midnight or whatever, and then spend some time in the recording studio to help the recording students record 
many different things and many different kinds of music played by different musicians in different contexts, in different rooms, all that kind of stuff. So, um, so in other words, the recording uh, kind of atmosphere is very, very comfortable for me. So it's also part, it ties into my job here when I was working at Second Soleil for 18 years because even though it was a live show, we had in-ears or headphones on and we had the talk back. It was very much a studio environment. The band was divided in two halves, you know, 90 feet apart or 95 feet apart. And so it had to be a little bit of a studio environment, even though it was completely live, uh, of course. So, but all of that, you know, having, uh, and of course I was the, uh, I was the progenitor of, uh, of the talkback, <laughs> mostly in, in, the, in that role, because I was the one telling the rest of the band what to play when. And so, you know, and explaining, okay, this happened, so let's do this today because I'm trying this, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, but it was basically a studio environment, so I spent another, you know, 18 years, 40 hours a week in a studio, basically, you know, so. mentioned coming to Orlando to be a part of La Nuba. Tell, tell, tell me a little bit about how that happened. Like, how did you get connected? How did you get from the studio scene uh, to the circus? Okay, well, there's, uh, there's something I always tell every, every talk on, on uh, either success or career choices or, you know, biz music business, like all of these, I give talks to universities frequently and I have for many, many years. And uh, I tell that story because that's very much part of uh, what I believe is true. And that is you have to get out there and get yourself be seen and heard by people if you want to be a successful musician. Or, and that's true in every endeavor. Of course, if you're a coder, if nobody knows that you're coding, then you're not going to be a successful coder, right? You're going to be a, a lonely coder who codes for yourself only. So whatever it is that you're doing, people have to know that you're doing it and that you're good at whatever it is you do. And so one of the things I, I used to do is I used to conduct a big band and we had, uh, we had you know, we did gigs of all kinds, but and socials and dance things and all kinds of things. But one of the things we did is we had a, a artistic season and I wrote for that. 
and I conducted that band, and a scout came to one of the concerts that I put together with that big band. And these things would be very costly. We usually never bro broke even, like, you know, I had to absorb cost. But this was all because I wanted people to know that I was still out there conducting big bands, because that's what I taught at McGill was big bands, so I was conducting there. But, I mean, outside of the school sometimes, you know. So we did that. We would rent this concert venue and um, it was kind of like a, where alcohol was served but it wasn't a bar like we have these venues in Montreal are pretty common there's like six or seven of them there used to be many many more but um, still it's a lot better than many cities where you can you know you go to a concert it could be classical it could be jazz it could be pop it could be any rock heavy metal whatever and but it's a concert venue that has tables and chairs sometimes sometimes not and you can buy a beer and whatever so um, so anyways, the scout called me and said, hey, I love what you're doing, and uh, uh, you really connected with the singers. He saw a Brazilian thing, so it was all, half of it was Jobim's music, but I had, a, it was 25 musicians on stage, so I had a big band plus a full Brazilian, you know, contingent of singers and percussion section, the whole thing. And so, uh, but the other half was music from these Brazilian people that I arranged for big with a big band, and so it was unique, and you know the composition, the concerts, anyways. So, um, so the the scout called me, said, "Hey, you want to do O in Vegas?" And I li literally said, "No," and I and I hung up the phone because <laughs> I hate Vegas. Um, but I uh, two months later, I read in the paper they were opening a show in Orlando. So I called the same guy, I said, "Hey, I'll do Orlando. I can imagine raising a family in Orlando. It seems a little bit more family oriented as a city, you know." And um, and uh, he said, okay, you got it. So that was it. I never auditioned for the, the, work, the thing. The, the idea was I was on television a lot, and I also played for in television series, like uh, Trumpet, but I, I appeared a couple times. So I was well-known. Like I was, you know, I made myself well-known. And when I, I remember, like, I used to play, if I had the night that had nothing, I would go walk down the street. I used to live downtown Montreal so I could walk with my trumpet case and if I heard if I heard some music I would just walk in and play for free for them like a blues club or whatever I just play for them so I never stayed home ever I just went out and played you know if it paid or not I didn't care and so and eventually it led me to getting better gigs and like you know somebody saw me play in a club with a fusion band and my wife had just told me that we were going to have a child, you know, our first child, and I was ecstatic, and I radiating, you know, and I stole the show, and at, by coincidence, there were three television producers, or, you know, there was a conductor and two producers in, in, the, uh, in the audience, and they, I got a lot of television work, you know, that's where my television career kind of took off, is when they saw me perform on stage, and I was like radiating joy and whatever, so, and they thought I was like that all the time, so... I, I, you, you, I, I think you probably are. <laughs> no, it was exceptional. <laughs> I think it was, I was exceptionally happy. But the, the, the fact remains that I got a lot of work out of it. And some of it was like, you know, uh, several years I played uh, the Canada Day, you know, on Parliament Hill. So it's kind of like the, the 4th of July on Capitol Hill, or, you know, if, if I was in that, the house band there and I did that for several years. And so it was not only very uh, well paid because it was quadruple scale because right. it was the holiday well it was double scale because it was the holiday it was more than quadruple scale it was 
another scale for the French radio, CBC French radio, CBC English radio, so that's another scale, and then uh, television French and television English, all CBC, but so it was four networks plus doubles, so it was eight times their normal pay. So I, you know, and I got to play with the biggest stars, you know, I got to play with the band, you know, the band? Yeah. I played with them, I played wow. with all kinds of, you know, because they're Canadian. Um, and I played with all kinds of, you know, all po the pop stars and stuff. So, you know, all the, and then you do more then you get called for more because people see you doing that. And, you know, and of course many people see you doing that when it's a big, uh, scale, like, you know, coast to coast and all that stuff. Because of course the television scene in Montreal is unique. We have our own language, as you can tell from my accent, which is, will not leave. It will not go away ever. But um, so we have like, uh, just to give you an example, talk shows with a live band. How many are there in the United States? Maybe six? Something like that. True. Well, in Montreal, there are six or seven. Uh, just, just in Montreal. Just in Montreal. Wow. And so, you know, I used to do like, I, there used to be a, a, a morning show, like a smart, I'm trying to find an, an equivalent, but like, uh, you know, the NPR on point, that host, that kind of show, but with a live band on television. So it was very like uh, 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 news-based, like uh, actuality-based. I don't know how you say that. The current event-based, but super smart, like very high-end. And there was like a short section of Colin, and they he would get like all smart callers, you know. That but all with the live band, and we did a lot of. There were paint, people painting on the stage, like very artistic, very cool stuff. And then I did a. A daily show for a while. I wasn't there every day, but it was a daily show. That was also a daily show. That show I was just talking about. But we did like Bowie Show. Bowie Show was like an afternoon show on a less. Uh, it was the Quebec uh, uh, kind of version of the CBC, so the public network, you know. But the Quebec one, um, Radio Quebec, and that was a basically a music show and art, like you know, dance sometimes, but but not necessarily classical music, mostly jazz, Latin music, you know, the Latin music scene in Montreal is very, very cool. It's very high, you know, it's actually hot. It's very hot. It's very happening. So we have a big Asian community. So I learned to play compa uh, right out the bat, you know, uh, in school. So, and, and then you, you learn to play salsa in like 17 different flavors because there's pockets of, you know, um, of these every, like there's a Peruvian section, there's a a Chilean section, there's a Puerto Rican section, a Cuban section, so, and they all have their own bands, and so they, they can play the same song, but with their flavor, so you act, it's almost like you're traveling, and you're learning these small details, like, you know, the, the differences, you know, from place to place, like, you know, there's important differences be between, for example, the way the Cubans play salsa and the Puerto Ricans play salsa, but I know that because I've played with both, you know, and I so you know the bass lines are busier, and and then I, you know I observed because I played drums, I observed the percussionists, and I learned actually on the job playing trumpet, I learned about percussion, and so I learned enough that I could try, and so what I would do in the, between our sets, they would be a, a usually the, a, like the disc, the disc jockey would come on, and so I would stay on stage and play percussion in between our sets, you know, instead of just vegging out in the, the dressing room, and so you know, I learned on the spot and that's what I do. You know, I learned to play bass on the spot uh, because I had a situation where I needed to play bass. So I learned to play bass and that's how, isn't that how we learn, you know? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you don't need any more degrees. On the job, you know, but it's, well, 
Well, so what, tell, tell me about what you, what, what, how you brought all of that stuff with you to Orlando. Orlando. Well, basically what happened is that in 1999, um, because we got here like later in 98, so when it started cooling down a little bit at work and I, I could enjoy some time off, like my days off, because for the first, you know, for the creation and the first six months of the run, basically I was there seven days a week. But our days off were Tuesday and Wednesday. And so not very conducive to big things happening in any town, but Orlando was especially quiet on, in the middle of the week. And uh, because I was working on weekends, I couldn't see any good things on weekends. So uh, it took, I, after like months of searching, we finally got one good band, you know, like on a Wednesday night. I was, oh yeah, cool, you know, but it was a one-off. And so, you know, so I decided just, well, let's do something on, at the house on Tuesdays. And so I just had a concert and I arranged the uh, box Goldberg variations for the band at work, at Cirque, you know, so it was... Piano, violin, trumpet, English horn, and cello. And so I arranged some, like, you know, Alex played a, just a couple of variations by himself on piano. Um, then I did some things with piano and violin. And then I did all kinds of different combinations with cello and violin. You know, like, not very few variations at all of us, but some, a couple of them did. But anyways, that was the first concert. That's it. I'm going to leave you hanging. That's right, it's a two-parter, but you're clever and read the episode title, so you probably knew that already. Stay tuned for the thrilling conclusion on the next episode of Tim McCoy Presents. Be sure to visit our site and pick out a concert to stop by and say hello to Benoit in person. The full calendar is at timukua.com. That's T-I-M-U-C-U-A dot com. I'd like to again thank our sponsor, Orlando Brewing. Try their organically brewed beers in their tap room at 1301 Atlanta Avenue in Orlando, as well as pubs and stores all around Central Florida. If you drink beer, and I've been known to drink beer from time to time, this is good stuff. Check it out. You won't be sorry. If you would like to join Orlando Brewing by sponsoring future episodes of the podcast, please get in touch with us at podcast at timukua.com. The executive producer of Timoko Presents is Chris Belt. It was recorded and edited by me, David McDonald. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you at the show.